Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would confront us with your greatness and glory and cause us to be liberated from all of the idols that we are tempted to serve. And Lord, we pray that you would make us those who believe that a day is coming when yet once more you will shake the heavens and the earth and only what is lasting will remain. Lord, help us to be those who live like we believe that and use this passage before us to do it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> in the opening of his book on idolatry, Tim Keller recounts five suicides. These all occurred after the global economic crisis that began in mid-2008, and Keller lists these, these guys who took their own lives. He says, the acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, <coughs> the Federal Home Loan, Loan Mortgage Corporation, <coughs> hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who had lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, opened his own veins and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London. When a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, which had bought his collapsed firm, he took a drug overdose and leapt from the 29th floor of his office building. And as Keller goes on to, to uh, describe these tragic uh, suicides, he draws a distinction between sorrow and despair, and it's a helpful distinction for us. He says, sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. And then a few pages later, he defines idolatry like this. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. What will free us from the temptation to worship idols? What's going to do that for us? What's going to free us from idolatry is an experience of the living and true God. And I would invite you to open up your Bible this morning to Psalm 97, and we will look at Psalms 97 and 98. And what we see described here is a manifestation of the true and living God. So we're just going to walk through these passages 
and, and think through what kinds of assertions the psalmists are making, the psalmist is making, and we're going to try to think about what this says to us and how it will free us from these other things that we're tempted to worship. So before I start reading Psalm 97, let me say this. Let me just preface these first few verses with, with what I think will help us understand what's, what's going on in this passage. What seems to be described here is the Lord arriving to save the world. The Lord arriving once and for all to make all things new, to set every wrong right. So this is not just about individual salvation. This is not just about um, the satisfaction of uh, justice against sin. This is the remaking of the world in accordance with the, the intentions that he set out to accomplish from the very beginning. And so the first words, Psalm 97 verse 1, the Lord reigns. And there's a sense here, in, in, now it hasn't happened yet, right? It hasn't happened yet for us and it hadn't happened yet when the psalmist was writing these words. And so, so at one level, these are statements that are made in faith because it doesn't look right now like the Lord reigns. It doesn't feel always like the Lord reigns. So the psalmist is saying, against all the evidence, the Lord reigns. And he's going to start talking about what it's going to be like when that becomes reality, the, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. So think of this globe that we're on, rejoicing, breaking, bursting into song. Let the many coastlands be glad. You, you can imagine uh, the coasts of the continents, uh, the, the, the island places, and they, they burst forth into glad celebration. And then after those introductory uh, statements, he does something very interesting, this unnamed psalmist does. He starts using imagery from Sinai. So this is why we read uh, Exodus chapter 19 verse, or, or earlier in the, in, the, in the service. And it's also why we read uh, Hebrews 12. Because what we see from those two passages is that the, the author of Hebrews is expecting what happened at Sinai to happen again. And I think he's informed by what this psalmist is doing. Because this psalmist is picking up that imagery from Sinai when the Lord came down on the mountain. And it's like he's saying, here he comes again. Like he did when he came at Sinai. So I know that we are all so terribly self-absorbed. We all live in these, these halls of mirrors where we are the most prominent thing in our own consciousness. And, and we need to be delivered from that, and we can be delivered from that by this description of the coming of Almighty God. Look at verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. This is exactly the way the coming of the Lord in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai was described. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. We start pushing on that. And we start asking, what establishes righteousness? Well, in our day, and we'll consider later some, some considerations about righteousness that are current in our culture. So in our day, there are all kinds of disputed ideas about what makes for righteousness. But in the Bible, 
Righteousness comes from the character of God. So the foundation of his throne, what is his throne about? God's throne is about his authority to judge and his power to put his standards into practice, right? God's going to make the laws, then he's going to evaluate people by those laws. And so what's the foundation of that authority that's symbolized by his throne? Well, it's righteousness and justice. Where do righteousness and justice come from? From who he is. Where have those things been articulated? Well, the handiest summary of them in the Bible is in the Ten Commandments, right? That's why the Sinai imagery, I think, is here. And it's like what the psalmist is saying is, you remember when God came down on the mountain and spoke those Ten Commandments? He's going to come again one day. And the righteousness and justice of Sinai are going to be applied on a worldwide scale. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And then think of that, the clouds and thick darkness there at the beginning of verse 2. So that in verse 3, the fire that goes before him is this bright blaze against that dark backdrop. This would be overwhelming. It's just this kind of vision that Ezekiel had in Ezekiel chapter 1. Daniel describes the same kinds of of manifestations of the Lord, where where he comes and there's this fire blazing out from him. Fire goes before him, and then verse 3 goes on to say, and burns up his adversaries all around. Who are his adversaries? Well, from the imagery here, you know, the, the psalmist is not coming out and spelling out who the adversaries are. He's not identifying them. Uh, but he's, he's evoking the image of Mount Sinai, and he's bringing that thing, that, those things before the minds of his audience. And I think the reason he's doing it this way is because poetry and, and imagery like this has a way of, of working its way into the mushy parts of, of, of our being where words don't always go. But, but if we were to put this in words, I think we could say something like this. The enemies of the Lord are those who reject the standards of Sinai and act like they're going to overcome God and his authority. Those are the adversaries. And it's like what the psalmist is saying is, when he comes, nobody's going to avoid his standards. Nobody is going to be able to gainsay God's justice. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. So it's like he's coming. And, and as he arrives on the scene of, of all the world to finally set up the throne and execute justice, his enemies are being consumed before him. And then again, against that dark black backdrop of the clouds and thick darkness, verse 4, his lightnings light up the world. Maybe you've seen these big billowy clouds, and it looks like lightning is flashing inside the clouds, and you see the reflection of it. I think that's the kind of glorious thunderstorm-like scene that we've got being depicted here. His lightning, his lightnings light up the world, and then the end of verse 4 uh, says, the earth sees. So once again, just like the, the opening statement, let the earth rejoice. The earth is being personified. The globe is being spoken of as though it has eyes. And, and what's happening is the world is beholding God. And then the last phrase there of verse 4, the, or the last words that say, and trembles, 
This is a verb that describes a woman writhing in the pains of childbirth. So, you know, in, in, in Romans 8, Paul talks about how uh, at the end of all things, these pangs of childbirth are going to come upon all creation. And that's the language that's being used here in Psalm 97. So it's, it's, it's as though the new creation, the new heavens and new earth are going to be brought out of the existing, new life is going to come. And, and that's the way the earth is now responding to the manifestation of the Lord. And then verse 5, the mountains melt like wax. What the psalmist is getting at is that creation cannot sustain the presence of the Lord. I mean, imagine one of these massive spikes of granite and igneous and metamorphic and sedimentary rock that is a mountain, and the thing dissolves like the wax of a candle. That's what's happening when the Lord shows up. Creation cannot sustain him. Creation cannot endure him. The mountains melt like wax before Yahweh, before the Lord of all the earth. So what we need to experience is the glory of this God. Because if we experience the glory of this God, we will not persist in thinking that some finite thing could ever answer the yearnings of our souls. We will not, if we experience the glory of this God and it begins to, to work its way into who, who we are, that we are made in the image and likeness of this God, that we're put on this earth to represent Him, we will not continue to think that we are what matters. And that if we are not able to present ourselves in the way that we want to be presented to the world, life is not worth living. We won't continue to think that way. We'll be liberated from those petty, small, insignificant, trivial estimations of ourselves because we'll realize, I am not the point and I will never be the point. Now we change, verses 1 through 5. Notice there's a, a, a kind of a little bit of space. If you're looking at the ESV like I am, you've got a little bit of a space between verse 5 and verse 6. And, and, and it, what the, what the uh, people that uh, printed the text are telling you is we think there's a thought break here, and I think they're right about this thought break. Because in verses 1 through 5, it's like uh, the Lord of Sinai has arrived on the scene to begin His reign. And now in, in verses 6 through 9 you see the reaction of the peoples. But before we get into the reaction of the peoples, um, verse 6, it's like it continues to develop that description of the clouds and thick darkness and the, the lightnings that are flashing in the midst of those clouds. And, and verse 6 says, the heavens proclaim His righteousness. The heavens, in all of that cosmic disturbance that accompanies the coming of the Lord, it's like the heavens above are saying, here is the righteous one. They're saying, he is the one who is just. He is the one who is true. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. And then in the middle of verse 6, it starts. We start talking about the people's reaction. All the peoples see his glory. 
you know, lots of people have lots of different ideas about what can be, what ought to be worshipped and about um, what ideas ought to be honored and what ideas ought to be promoted. Lots of people have lots of ideas about the religions of the world and, and how people ought to talk and live in response to the truth and the meaning of those religions. And what this text is saying is all the peoples will see his glory. And I don't know about you, but when I evaluate some of those other religions, I look at them and I say, that's not worthy of worship. That's contemptible. That's not convincing. That, that's, that's repre- Who would worship that? Well, on the day when the Lord comes, nobody's going to respond that way. Nobody's going to have that kind of response for the Lord. And so maybe, you know, maybe you're sitting here this morning, and, and you're not a Christian, and you've got these thoughts about Christianity like I've just described about other religions. And you think that Christianity has some disgusting aspects to it. What I would like to say to you is, can we talk about those things? You know, I don't know where your problem areas are, but every one of the elders in this room would be delighted uh, to discuss those problems er- problem areas with you. We would love to, to hear... This week I read an article um, that made this ludicrous claim about Christianity, about how um, you can point to texts in the Bible that demand that true believers use violence against unbelievers. And I'm going, what texts? Where in the world is this idea coming from? That is such a total distortion and misunderstanding of the Bible. Now, I think I know the, 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 pas- the particular passages that that person may be uh, talking about. And what I'd like to do is have the opportunity to discuss those things. So if you've got those thoughts about, about violence in Christianity or Christianity and sexuality or whatever it may be, we'd love to have that conversation with you. We'd love to have that conversation. And we think, we're convinced, that, that once, once we lay out the case, now there's always the possibility that you might just walk away in rebellion because you recognize that the true and living God is calling you to repentance. But we think that there's a rational basis for Christianity that will be ultimately and finally convincing to you. And we'd love to have the opportunity to explore it with you. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. And then verse 7, all worshipers of images. Okay, so these are the people that disregarded the first two commandments, right? Commandment 1 at Sinai, no other gods before me. Commandment 2 at Sinai, you shall make no images. And these are people that concluded, it's better for me to make images than to obey those commands. And, and there's all kinds of reasons that people come to the, those conclusions, aren't there? These gods represented by these images can help me. They can do things for me. Or, or maybe I can manipulate the powers that stand behind those gods. And I can compel them to help me to fix my life. And then we think the same thing about money. If I just get money... It'll fix me. About influence, if I can just get the amount of influence that I need, it'll make things right. It'll make my life better. Or about various forms of satisfaction. If I can just enjoy that high or that thrill or that pleasure, everything will be right with me. All worshipers of images, all idolaters, are put to shame. Why are they put to shame? Because it's revealed that they should have believed. 
They should have believed that when the Lord said, you shall have no other gods before me, what he's really saying is, I'm the only thing that can scratch the deepest itch in your soul. I'm the only thing that you ought to worship. I'm the only thing that you ought to look to for ultimate satisfaction. I'm the only thing that can renew you and heal you and put you back together and mend you. All worshipers of images are put to shame because their, their decisions are shown to be foolish. Foolish in a devastating way. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Literally, the text reads, who make their boast in worthless things. Look how strong I am. Look how much prowess I have on the basketball court or the baseball field. Look how much money I'm able to make. Look how beautiful I am. Look how, look how I'm able to influence the course of events. Look at the wonderful words I can string together. All of these things that people worship, worthless before the coming of the living God. It's the coming of the one who is without limit, who, who, who cannot be measured, who cannot be in any way constrained, that exposes everything else as, as nothing before him. So that's how the, the idolaters, all peoples, verse 6, see his glory. And then the, the, word, the idolaters in verse 7, they're put to shame. Look how the believers respond in verse 8. Now, the text doesn't say... The believers respond. It says, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice. But these are believers. You know why? Because these are the people who heard the words at Sinai. They heard the declaration. And their response to it was, it doesn't look that way to me right now. It doesn't look to me like Yahweh's going to be the one who's ultimately and finally going to reign. But I'm going to believe that that's the case. I'm going to trust it. And I'm not going to look to other sources of satisfaction. I'm not going to look to other sources of significance. I'm not going to look to other sources of power. I'm going to trust that this is the God. And so, when He comes, when He arrives on the scene, their belief is vindicated. And they rejoice. They feel the relief. We trusted Him. We took Him at His word. We believed that He would one day finally come and punish evildoers and, and reward those who did what He commanded them to do. And now here He is. And praise God. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice. Why? Because He has come and He's put His standards into effect. Look at the end of verse 8. Because of your judgments, O Lord. And then there's this explanatory comment at the end of verse 9. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Whatever demonic powers stand behind the things that people worship. You know, in the ancient world, they had these images and statues and things. We don't, you got that in some places in the world. Maybe most places except for the modern West. Uh, but, but here in the modern West, we've got these things that we worship. We've got these things that control our behavior. These things that, that we begin to feel, if I didn't have this, life wouldn't be worth living. I don't know what it is for you. 
Uh, what we want to do is eradicate all those things from our lives. We don't want to feel about anything but God. If I didn't have it, I couldn't go on. And if, if, if you feel that way about the Lord, no matter what happens to you, you can rejoice. You can be like Job. We don't, none of us wants to have Job-like suffering brought into our lives. But if we're genuine worshipers of the living God, you can endure unpleasant things that the Lord might bring into your life. And, and you can face all those things knowing what God is doing is making me, I mean, maybe, maybe it's, I don't know if it's right to think about this, 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 these kinds of thoughts about ourselves, but this is really what's going on. God is making me like the heroes of the faith of old through my suffering. Through my suffering, God is conforming me to the image of Christ. Through these difficulties, these things I wouldn't have chosen. I didn't want it to turn out this way. But the Lord is going to use this. And the Lord is going to make me someone who is deep down like Christ. Like Job. Like Abraham. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Now the psalmist takes this and he applies it for us. So the Lord comes the way he did at Sinai in verses 1 through 5. And then you see the reaction to his coming from the wicked and the righteous, the unbelievers and the believers in verses 6 through 9. And now there's this application of the message. Verse 10. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Hate evil. How do we know what evil is? Well, once again, think of the Sinai imagery. Things that promote idolatry. Things that dishonor the authorities in our lives. Honor your father and your mother. Things that, that show discontent with what the Lord has given to you. You shall not covet. Things that, that seek to take the Lord's good gifts outside of the way that Lord has prescribed for you to enjoy those things, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not murder. These, these, all these things we can say, those are evils that are prohibited. You who love the Lord hate evil. I think we could include in there things that make you think that evil is good. Things that make you think that the evildoers have the right idea. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. It's like he gives you the application and then he encourages you. It's not the idols that are going to keep you alive. It's not those things that are going to preserve your life. He preserves, the Lord preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. They may look powerful. They may look overwhelming. But the Lord is going to protect you. And then look at this beautiful statement in verse 11. Light is sown for the righteous. Light is sown for the righteous. It's, it's as though what the psalmist is doing is he's saying, I'm going to treat light, and then look at the rest of the verse, and joy for the upright in heart. I'm going to treat light and joy with an agricultural metaphor. And I'm going to talk about these things as though they are seeds. And then again, I think we can go to the Ten Commandments. You can take these these commandments, which are really like road markers to the way of life. They're, they're guideposts to the good life. 
You take those things and, and these seeds are planted in you. And what happens is that light, it's, it's like a seed. It goes into the ground and dies. And then the root begins to come out of that shell. And then the, the shoot begins to pop up and break the surface. And then the thing grows and grows and eventually it starts to bear fruit. And then there's going to be a harvest. And that harvest is going to be righteousness and peace in your life because you've got light and joy from the Lord's word. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. There's no better way to live than to have light sown into your heart like seed. That's what the Word of God does as it enters into our consciousness and reshapes the way we think about things and then begins to inform the conclusions that we draw. Light is sown for the righteous. And then it, it's like that statement um, that, that says in, in Proverbs that talks about how the righteous grow brighter and brighter until the full dawn. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in Yahweh, O you righteous. Hate evil, rejoice in the Lord. Hate evil, find your happiness in God. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. And then the, the last uh, words of verse 12, they translate this and give thanks to his holy name. Um, I wish they would translate this more literally. Uh, literally, what it says is, give thanks to the memory of his holiness. And they, what they've done is they've said, okay, memory is about name, so we're going to translate it name to help people out. But I think it would help us to say, give thanks to the memory of his holiness. Because you know where I'm going. I think it's talking about Sinai. Give thanks that the God of the Bible manifested himself to you in this way and showed you what his holiness was, revealed himself to you. He didn't owe you that. He did that of his own free goodness for you. We, we had no power to constrain the living God to say, show me the true standard of right and wrong. Reveal yourself to me. Overwhelm me with your glory. We had no power to bring that about. So give thanks to the memory of his holiness. And then I think there's a, a natural connection between Psalms 97 and 98. Because whereas 97 describes what's going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes again. That's where I, think I, I would locate the fulfillment of Psalm 97, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And the, the idolaters will be put to shame and the believers will be rejoiced and his glory will be overwhelming. And then Psalm 97 is like the response that's called for uh, in reaction to the Lord. So 98 verse 1, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Now let me just take a second and think with you about the, the series of psalms that we've seen since we started into this book four, this fourth unit of the Psalter. And... Um, I think it's significant that book 3 ends with a Psalm 89, a psalm about the destruction of Jerusalem and the removal of the Davidic king from the throne, which happened in Israel's history. And, um, and then Psalm 90, we saw, had this mosaic intercession 
a prayer of Moses, the man of God, and he's praying in verse 12 the same words that Moses prayed when Israel sinned at the golden calf back at, at Sinai. And then Psalm 91, you remember, is talking about this figure and then addressing this guy, this individual. And, I, and I've suggested that I think it's the king from the line of David, which is it. That's how Satan quotes Psalm 91 in the Gospels. So I think, that, I think Satan's a good exegete. And then um, Psalm 92 um, restates words from Psalms 1 and 2. And it's like Psalm 92 is saying, hey, you remember that, th those words about the blessed man and how um, he's going to conquer? And you, you remember those words about the Lord's anointed and how he's going to inherit all the ends of the earth? That stuff's still true. And then 93 presents the Lord on his throne. 94, look at verse 1, O Lord, God of vengeance. God is going to avenge his holiness. Um, 95 uh, is, is also quoted by the author of Hebrews. At the end of the psalm, it's talking about this rest. And you remember how the author of Hebrews says that a rest still remains for the people of God in the future. And then um, 96 is this worldwide call to worship that's joined by 97 where the, the Lord comes in glory and then 90, 98 reiterates the worldwide call to worship. So it's like there are these patterns in the Psalter that are going to be realized, fulfilled, I think, at the second coming. And, and when that day comes, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. That's what he did at the Exodus. His right hand and his holy arm worked salvation at the Exodus. And they're saying, sing him a new song because he's done it again. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation, the salvation of the whole world. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Notice how it's international in scope. Verse 3, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. It's an interesting way of putting things because... The reality is the Lord never forgot his steadfast love and his faithfulness, did he? The Lord never forgets his love and his truth. But when he finally acts on it, when he finally delivers, it's like, oh, he remembered it came to pass. And so thus, verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, end of verse 2, in the sight of the nations, End of verse 3, the ends of the earth have seen. Verse 4, all the earth is called to make a joyful noise, to break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And do you know what? This is legitimate because he's worthy of this praise. He deserves it, and everybody's going to see it, and everybody's going to feel it. And then he turns from the people to creation at the end of this psalm in verses 7 through 9. Let the sea roar. Maybe you've been to the ocean or the seaside, and you've heard the crashing of the waves, the roar of the sea. It's like, it's like the, the sea is being personified. Let it roar in praise of the Lord. And all that fills it. I mean, we don't begin, I, I don't begin to, to 
imagine all the stuff that lives in the ocean, and all that stuff is going to praise the Lord. Let the rivers, verse 8, clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The way that I want to conclude this morning is by talking about um, an alternative to Christianity that, that seems to be moving through our culture. And I was educated about this week, uh, about this issue this week, uh, by uh, Denny, you know. If I talked to Denny more, I'd be a lot smarter. If I read what he's written more, I would know a lot more about a lot of things. So I'm always grateful to learn from him. And um, this week he was telling me about this thing called intersectionality. I don't know if he's blogged on it yet. Maybe he has. Um, uh, this guy, Andrew Sullivan, you may recognize that name. He's a, sort of a famous reporter. He wrote this essay asking the question, is intersectionality a religion? And I just want to read to you some sections of, the, of, of his uh, discussion of intersectionality. And I think what we'll see is intersectionality, the God of intersectionality, is not going to judge the world with righteousness or the peoples with equity. So, so listen, listen to this description. Andrew Sullivan writes, quote, Intersectionality is the latest academic craze sweeping the American academy. On the surface, it's a recent neo-Marxist theory that holds that social oppression does not simply apply to single categories of identity, such as race, gender, sexual orientation, class, etc., but to all of them in an interlocking system of hierarchy and power. Okay, so in intersectionality, um, the white male is the oppressor. And everybody has been oppressed by the white male. So if, by both uh, skin color and by uh, gender or, or sex and, and uh, your sexual practices. So for instance, if you're a black male, well, you're oppressed because you're black, but you have the advantage of being male. And, and if you're a black female, now you're doubly oppressed because you're not only black, you're also a female. And then it gets complicated by your, your orientation. You know, so that if you're a if you're a, a black female gay person, now you're triply. The oppressions are intersecting with one another, and then you can throw in the transgender stuff, and it really starts getting confusing. But but Andrew Sullivan goes on. He says, "Quote: It is operating, in Orwell's words, as a smelly little orthodoxy, and it manifests itself. It seems to me, Sullivan writing, almost as a religion." It posits a classic orthodoxy through which all of human experience is explained and through which all speech must be filtered. And then listen to this. This is a quote from Andrew Sullivan. Its version of original sin is the power of some identity groups over others. To overcome this sin, you need first to confess, i.e., check your privilege, and subsequently Live your life and order your thoughts in a way that keeps this sin at bay. The sin goes so deep into your psyche, especially if you are white or male or straight, that a profound conversion is required. Then he goes on to write, The saints, 
are the most oppressed, who nonetheless resist. The sinners are categorized in various ascending categories of demographic damnation, like something out of Dante. The only thing this religion lacks, of course, is salvation. Life is simply an interlocking drama of oppression and power and resistance ending only in death. It's Marx without the final total liberation. Um, he goes on to, to talk about how if you see the world in a different way, you're not just wrong, you're immoral. You are a heretic who needs to be suppressed because you can't reason with heresy. This is a false religion. And it's not righteous. It's not righteous. It's not the way God is going to judge the world. We, we have to be, what we have to do is we have to think about the way that our contemporaries are think about, thinking about the world and we want to measure it by biblical standards. And then we want to present to people a God. Look at Psalm 98 verse 9 again. He will judge the world with righteousness. And the peoples with equity. And, and then we want to think about people in terms that the Bible presents them to us. Our greatest problem is not the, the, way, the various ways that other people have oppressed us. Our greatest problem is how we stand before a holy and living God. And the most significant things about us are not the various ways that we resist oppressors or the various ways that we try to do obeisance for the sins of oppression that we have committed. The most important things about us are how we relate to Jesus. And then whether we see other people as image bearers and seek to love them as Christ has loved us. That's the way we must live our lives in response to the true gospel. And living in response to the true gospel is going to entail resisting these various false gospels that are on offer in our culture. He will judge the world with righteousness. It's a standard of righteousness revealed in the scriptures and the peoples with equity. Let me take you back to Psalm 97 verse 7. All worshipers of images are put to shame. Every one of us has been, and probably in various ways right now, guilty of idolatry. Every one of us. So the remarkable thing about Christianity is that it humbles us all. It puts us all in a position where we are able to say, I need God, and I need the salvation that God provides from his righteous standard. And he has provided. That's, he has provided it. That salvation that we all need. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. That it simultaneously humbles us to the dust. And lifts us up. As Hannah said. That we may sit with princes. As those who are heirs with Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we want to experience you in your glory as we have been exposed to it through the words of Psalms 97 and 98. And Lord, we want our hearts to resonate with the call to praise in Psalm 98. Lord, there are all kinds of ways in which our hearts don't resonate with those calls to praise. We get distracted. We get concerned with many things 
Satan wants to come and, like a bird, eat up the seed that's sown. There are these weeds in our lives that want to choke out the light that has been sown and joy that has been sown into our lives. And Father, we're praying that you would make us good soil. You're the gardener. You're the one who can pull the weeds around us. You're the one who can fertilize the soil. You're the one who can make sure that we're planted by a stream of living water. You're the one who can make it so that we are eager to respond to Jesus as we should. And we're asking that you would do it, Lord, because we believe that you are the only thing that can ultimately satisfy us. We believe we were made for you. And so we pray that you would come and work this all through every corner of our lives, that we might be more fully and completely and perfectly yours. We pray that you do it in Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.